are now listening to Misty Radio on WMBR Cambridge 88.1 FM. I'm your host, Sanaya Sampson-Hill. As a whole, Misty has had to forego almost all travel for students, staff, and faculty. It was difficult to come to terms with this as a program that centers around traveling, but two staff members made the decision to fly out of America. Matt Burt, the Korea program manager, and Marco de Paula, the Brazil program assistant, went to, well, Korea and Brazil, respectively. Africa Managing Director Ari Jakobovitz interviewed them about their experiences and how they compared to each other. Also, COVID-19 has sent shockwaves through higher education in the U.S. and around the world. Today, we will share excerpts from a panel of MISTI international partner organizations to learn about how the pandemic has impacted their operations and what the future holds for universities globally. First, let's go to Ari, Matt, and Marco. Matt and Marco, thank you for joining us on the Missy Radio podcast. Uh, Matt is currently in Korea, and Marco is currently in Brazil. Uh, you are two of the people that have actually managed to get on a plane and travel a long distance during this global pandemic. There aren't too many that I've met, um, and you are both part of the Misty universe. So, Matt. Um, runs a career program and Marco runs the Brazil program with Rosa and I'm sort of curious to know about first your experience what it was just like getting on a plane traveling I mean we travel a lot of, for this job so you know I'm sure we've seen the airport in various states of busyness and non-busyness so I'm curious what that experience was like for you, what it was like to be on the plane. Um, and let's just start there. So Matt, you wanna start? Yeah, sure. I, I guess the one word I would use to describe it, at least in the States, but also in Korea is surreal. Going through Boston, Logan, JFK, New York, and Incheon International in Korea, you know, three very busy airports, some of the busiest in the world. And seeing all of the stores closed, the hallways almost completely empty, no lines when you're checking in, when you're going through security, or when you're going through immigration on your way out. Uh, I never thought that I would ever experience that. It felt like something out of a sci-fi movie. Um, and it was hard to find a place to eat in between as we were transferring at JFK. Um, fortunately, there was one single store, and of course it was a McDonald's that was open. And then we get into Incheon, same surreal feeling. Uh, there was not very many people on the plane. A lot of flights had been cut. And just to be cautious until we could get to Korea, you know, we wore masks the entire time on the plane. Um, First thing we did before we sat down was to take out a disinfectant wipe and wipe down any hard surfaces that somebody may have touched before, just because we wanted to be cautious. I was traveling with my family. And then we get to Incheon International and it was very systematic and very thorough. Uh, the Korean government uh, has done a very good job of plugging any holes and you know, doing what's necessary to manage the situation in a very robust, rigorous way. So we get off the airplane and we're immediately directed to a health check station first where 
They take our temperatures. They ask us if we've had any symptoms. Uh, we have to fill out several pieces of paperwork um, before we, you know, during this process to tell them, you know, this is any symptoms we've had. This is where we're coming from. This is where we're going. This is the place that we're planning on staying at and fulfilling the required two-week quarantine. Here's our contact information. Then we have to go to a station where uh, they had some younger military guys, not in uniforms, but just there as, um, uh, to help fill in a kind of a, a labor gap to make this all work, where they walked us through the process of installing a daily health check app on our phone, and we had to have a smartphone that could accommodate that. And it is tracking your movements so that it knows exactly where you're at while you're in the country. And it essentially makes sure that you're staying at the location you say you will stay at and that you're fulfilling the two-week quarantine strictly. Being, you don't have a smartphone. I mean, is, do they provide one or? Uh, they have an alternative way of doing it, yes. I think, they, okay. I think they actually do provide a smartphone if you don't have one. Wow, okay. Yeah, but it's a very strict quarantine. So as soon as you get through that line, there's nobody else in the airport other than the people that are running you know, the system and the people that are arriving. No guests to come pick you up, no visitors, uh, unless you have a family member that can come and pick you up and take you in private transportation to your location of quarantine. And if you don't, then you need to pay for a taxi uh, that's specially set up and arranged with plastic sheeting between you and the driver to make sure that there's no spread at all. Um, and they take you uh, either straight to your location where you're gonna quarantine or to your district health location within the city of Seoul, uh, which is what we did. We went straight to the health location because you're required to take a coronavirus test within three days of arriving there. Um, but they don't allow you to take public transportation to get to the site, so we just did it on the way. Did a coronavirus test, was not pleasant. My daughter definitely did not like it. Um, and then we go to our place of quarantine where it's very strict. You cannot go outside. You're not supposed to go outside. You're not supposed to open your door. You have to have your groceries delivered to you. Uh, really, the only thing that we could do to get fresh air was open a window, and that was it. And we were in our house for two weeks straight. Um, so not pleasant, but you know it's pretty clear that it's very necessary, uh, considering how well South Korea has done with this. That is incredibly thorough and impressive. And yeah. I. Let's uh, let's now juxtapose that, <laughs> Marco, with your experience traveling to Brazil. I'm guessing the airport experience may be similar, but I'll, you can comment on that and then what you had to do when you arrived. Hola, Ari. Um, I guess my the one word that I described my first travel experience was cautious. And after booking my flight. Um, I had called a couple of friends that work as a flight attendant to ask a few questions about safety information and also to try to get an upgrade to, to my flight to Brazil, but that didn't work out. However, um, I was surprised with no questions about being exposed to the virus um, or if you were sick or had a fever in the airport in the U US and also in Brazil. There were record, uh, recorded messages playing to use your best judgment, but it was clear that a lot of people, you know, don't, don't have a, a, any common sense or good judgment. And I did not have to do anything specific arriving in Brazil. However, uh, I stayed home for over two weeks 
just to be sure I wasn't exposed to anything during my trip. But my experience um, arriving in Brazil was totally different from Matt. Was there anybody like checking your temperature, asking you questions, anything? No, no questions, no checking temperatures, anything. And what was... We just arrive and and, and just use your best judgment. (laughs) Were there people wearing masks or anything like that? Um, Yeah, you were supposed to wear a mask all the time uh, inside um, the the airplane and the airport, only if you're eating or drinking. Got it. Was the airport also very empty in Brazil? Which airport did you arrive into? Um, I... I arrived in Sao Paulo and the, the, the airport was very empty uh, and all the seats were marked so people could keep um, social distance. Okay. And also when I left Logan um, at the start of the 4 July weekend, it was very empty, not as busy as typical for the weekend, uh, for July weekend. That's that's very interesting now to hear these two experiences. Yeah, that's quite and, a contrast. <laughs> yeah, quite a contrast. And I will actually, w- when you come back to the U.S., we should we should check back in to see what happens <laughs> when you arrive here. I'm actually very curious Definitely. about that now. Yeah, I am um, too. So, so Matt, I think the um, the that that Korean care package. Mm. is now a well-known thing. I certainly <laughs> made the rounds on social media. Um, so you got a care package for two weeks. So the groceries that you say that you got, was that was that all provided or was that something that you had to, you maybe got in addition, but you just got like a basics care package? So it actually depends on where you're at in Korea. Um, I think pretty much everybody that is quarantining uh, for the required two weeks. And again, that's all travelers. Doesn't matter what country you're coming from. Korea is just blanket two week quarantine requirement except for diplomats. Um, and I think depending on where you're actually staying, the package might be a little bit different, might be bigger, might be smaller. Um, so in our case, it's coming from our, our district office in Seoul. And within Seoul, there's like, I think nine or 10 districts total. And uh, they would have sent us a package that included um, some food, you know, rice that we can cook, um, some bottled water, um, really not things that are intended to gap the entire two weeks, but really just as something that's saying from the government, look, we know this is tough. We know you're making this do this, making you guys do this, and it's not pleasant. We just want you to know that we're here to support you in this. That's really the message that they sent. And it was the same thing in a little, they kind of give you a little mini care package at the airport too, just kind of explaining everything to you. And giving you uh, a phone number that you can call if you're having any like mental health issues during this time when you're stuck inside of a building for that long of a period of time for the first time in your life. So it was really just intended to be support resources, I think. Now, there are some locations, though, that I know other people actually received care packages like two different times once a week, and it was intended to provide for one person enough food for the entire two weeks. Uh, And I think that was actually down in Tegu, that area that was uh, particularly hard hit in Korea back in March. Um, and that was their, you know, Korea's main breakout that they were able to get under control. But after that, I think people that quarantined there got something a little bit bigger. Now, in our case, we actually didn't need that necessarily. And so we actually just had all of our groceries delivered, which has been 
really easy in Korea for a long time. Korea is like delivery nation. You can get anything delivered within less than a day in a lot of cases. And um, so they actually gave us the option of either receiving the care package or sending the equivalent of about $100 directly to our Korean bank account. And we just opted for the money because, you know, then we could use it for what we wanted. Okay. I was <laughs> going to ask you what was in the, I get, you might know what's in the care package, but you didn't, you didn't yeah. get one. No, yeah. And so I do know what's in them though. Uh, they will actually, a lot of times, if it's out and away from the major urban areas, it'll include locally grown produce, for example, some fruit and some vegetables. Uh, it'll usually include some rice uh, that you can cook in your rice cooker, um, snacks, ramen noodles, um, you know, different things that are just intended to be kind of a psychological support more than anything. Okay. That's nice. And um, yes. Marco, I'm, I'm assuming you didn't get anything like that. No, not at <laughs> or all. You were not no. offered anything like that. No, not at all. The situation here is, is the same uh, as in the U USA. Um, there, are, um, there are orders to stay home, to obey the law, but wear masks, social distance. But uh, a lot of people do not follow the, the law, especially, especially um, Bolsonaro supporters. Um, most of the restaurants are closed and few open places such as markets and stores uh, controlling the number of, of customers inside and they all have hand sanitizers outside and most of the markets are taking your know, temperature before they get into the store. That's so, uh, what area of Brazil are you currently in? I'm in Caeté. Um, it's um, my, my state called Minas Gerais, General Mines. There was a lot of gold mines back in the day. And Caeté is about um, 60 kilometers, 38 miles from the capital of, of my state, um, Belo Horizonte. That means beautiful horizon. And Caeté, it's composed for um, um, a very green landscape. And, and historically, um, the, the city, it's, um, it's a, uh, it began with the gold cycle and, and they, they, they had civil wars here in the city. Um, the area that you're in, has mm -hmm. it been badly hit? Um, or is it a bit more of a rural area where people are able to stay apart from each other a bit more? No, it's, it's a very rural uh, area is about 40,000 um, people living here. So there are 725 cases uh, with 56 confirmed cases and no deaths. And in the state in general, it's 113,000 cases with 2,500,000 deaths. Mm -hmm. And in Brazil right now, I, I think it's, it's about 2.5 million confirmed cases and 90,000 deaths as today. Wow. So, uh, Matt, moving around Korea now, mm -hmm. you know, what's sort of the scene there? Um, can you move around freely? How are people protecting themselves? What are some of the regulations when you're in closed spaces? Right. Yeah, it's actually got a very normal feel to it. Um, in fact, I, I met with somebody yesterday um, that just said he feels like, uh, you know, coronavirus is not really a thing in Korea anymore. 
and, and it actually does kind of feel like that. I mean, there are uh, a couple of policies that are intended to keep things where they're at, which right now it's like domestically maybe five to 10 cases per day on average now. Um, but overall, people are going about their lives pretty normally. You know, you're required to wear masks anytime that you can't realistically social distance, which means anytime you're on a bus, anytime you're on the subway, anytime you're inside of a building in a store, um, you know, in a lot of stores are taking your temperatures before you enter. But even that actually has lessened a lot since I first got here in May. Um, so really, that's just about it. They, they've just recently reopened some of the uh, public facilities that were closed for, for quite a while, such as museums. They've, they've reopened those now. And Korea's got a very clear, specific, and transparent set of criteria that they came up with very early on, and the public all knows about it. They say, okay, if we have this number of cases this many days in a row, we got to go from you know, step three down to step two. And if we get, you know, say, 100 cases a day for more than three days in a row, then we got to go down from step two to step one. And so far, they've been able to stay, you know, well under 50 cases a day, which is kind of the threshold before they would take the next step down into saying, okay, we got to close museums, um, you know, maybe even start limiting some of the in-person instruction at schools. Um, but that hasn't happened for quite a while now. So things are really getting very much back. They're already in a new normal, so to speak. You know, that's the phrase you hear in a lot of places. And Korea is already there, and it's already been there for quite a while. Uh, what's the plan for school? In the, are you on the, is Korea on the sort of same academic cycle as the U.S.? No, it's a very different cycle. So um, kids are actually just finishing up their semester now. Um, and they've been in school now for a little over a month, I think, about a month and a half. Um, and then they'll have a short summer vacation. Um, normally, they would have had summer vacation started by now, but the academic calendar got through, not thrown off pretty good. And they had to reset that calendar to kind of make up for lost time. And they'll have a shorter summer vacation as a result. Uh, and they'll start school back up. I believe it's in the middle of August after like a two-week vacation. Okay, um, but they're, you know, they're, they, in, they're physically in school. Yes, they are. Yeah, and, and so they have. Are they wearing masks or anything like that, or? Oh yes, yeah. So and, and masks are something that Koreans have been used to for a long time. So pretty much everywhere you go, even just outdoors, people are wearing their mask almost all the time. So it's interesting to me that you're still getting cases. So the ones, the new cases that are coming up, um, how are those? Are those traced back to any particular activities or how, how do those develop? What? So a lot of times they a lot of times they are traced back to something specific, but a lot of times it's just ongoing community transmission that has just taken time to get down to this level. That's been the interesting thing about this is that with Korea, they've been basically, you know, several steps or maybe dozens of steps ahead of other countries in the world. So it's almost like other countries can look at Korea and see a glimpse of what the future might be like for them if they take those same measures. So with Korea, no matter how hard they try, they still have these random poppings up of community-based transmission that they can't trace back to a specific source. And so because of that, they know that the virus is still circulating out there, but they've got a system in place to where as soon as somebody tests positive, you know, within less than a couple of hours, they have a crew out there that is talking to that person, tracing their location, their contacts, quarantining them and everybody that they had come into contact with, you know, within the last several days. 
Um, and so they're very fast with this. And so because of that, community transmission is kind of, you know, gone on a curve where it was really low, then it spikes in Tegu because of a particular church that uh, wasn't taking the right precautions. They get that under control after a long period of time. And now it's just kind of a, a gradually declining curve that still bumps up every once in a while. And they have to just keep on banging at it. It's kind of like whack-a-mole. And I swear Korea's killed like 5,000 moles by now. <laughs> but they, they're very persistent and they're keeping at it and they're not giving up. Um, and so that's been able, that's what, you know, how they've been able to get to where they're at right now, where they still have some cases that pop up they can't trace. But now it's getting to where the total number of cases they have in a day is between maybe 20 and 50. And the vast majority of those now are imported cases that they know they already have under control. So it's somebody that's testing positive, but they're in quarantine because everybody coming into the country has to quarantine right. for two weeks. But, but they still get counted in that overall number. They do. They still get counted yeah. in the overall number, but then they distinguish between those. And so community transmission, domestic cases for the last several weeks has been like five to 10, maybe 15 at the most. And it seems like about half or more of those they have been able to trace to a specific source. And a lot of times um, it's, you know, this cluster that they thought had petered out it had died out, but then, you know, there's a couple of cases that pop up from it that they didn't realize were still ongoing. Uh, Marco, what's the plan for uh, school in Brazil? It's, um, and yeah, what's happening there? And I'm sure there's some politics around that, but. And definitely, it's totally, totally the opposite from Korea. And the school year starts in, in February, right after Carnival. So right now, most states have um, announced the resuming in-person classes. It starts in September. So some, most of the students are taking online classes um, at the moment. And students um, supposedly will uh, rotate between in-person and online classes to, to allow um, social distance guidelines. But um, I think right now the mood here it's hopeless, and people are more worried about what they're gonna do for carnival than they are worried about the virus spreading. So it's it's, it's right. sad. So with so with cases on the rise, they're they're still gonna put students and like people. Everyone's gonna be back in school, and things are just gonna find some way to go back to normal. That's the plan. That's the plan. And the Brazil leaders is to see uh, to care very little or at least they have impression they are not happy, you know, to portray. So uh, early on in the, um, in the crisis, um, you know, the President Bolsonaro and his supporters went to TV several times calling the um, the flu, a little flu, and accusing the media of hysteria. So, Brazil health uh, health authorities have pushed to to improve uh, like drugs like um, hydrochloroquine, just by increasing uh, any scientific evidence that that the, the drug works. So it's 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 out of control, basically. Yeah. So um, in in Korea, 
what has the government done to mitigate the sort of economic impact? Um, what have they done to mitigate the economic impact? Really, what, they, what they've tried to do is just prevent this from spreading because I think the Korean government realized very early on that this was really not a choice where you're going to have you know, economic devastation either way, right? Which you kind of hear that sometimes that, um, uh, you know, if you lock down the economy, you know, you're, it's going to cause a lot of problems economically, maybe more than, you know, what it would cause if you just let the virus run its course, right? The Korean government has recognized that as a, a false equivalency, I think, um, for, you know, from the very beginning, they realized it was going to be far more damaging if they didn't keep this under control. Um, and so that has been their focus is just simply controlling this outbreak to the point where it didn't interrupt economic, daily economic life, just regular people's lives. Now, that being said, though, it has had an impact because Korea, South Korea has a very export uh, oriented economy. And because of the drop in demand in various places overseas, they've lost a lot uh, of their exports. I think the most recent number in the quarter in quarter one of this year's exports dropped by like uh, 20% or something like that. But what about everyone who had to close, like if they had a store that they had to close, for example, because they there actually work. were not that many cases like that because Korea okay. was able to avoid a, uh, like a broad economic lockdown, at least not for very long. So there were comparatively speaking, not very many stores, restaurants or the like that had to permanently close down just simply because they lost, you know, months of revenue. Here it was a week or two weeks where they had to do that kind of a lockdown and it was only in specific areas. I mean, right now Korea's total caseload is 13,000 total for the entire country uh, of 50 million people. Um, so it was really only the Tegu area that really had to do a fairly extended lockdown. But even, in the even then the government was very quick to step in with support um, to support both uh, small business owners as well as individuals who are suffering from this. Um, to give them the economic backing that they needed, and they didn't have to do it for very long. And so it wasn't that expensive for them to maintain that. Um, you know, plus the overall fiscal situation of Korea was much better. The government runs a much lower debt than almost any country in the OECD. Um, and so they were in a good position to deal with this uh, from, the, from the very beginning. And in Brazil, has there been any, has, has the government made any, like, um, payments or anything like that, like uh, increased yeah. unemployment benefits the way we've seen here in the US? Yeah, yeah there are uh, a stimulus plan. They get paid about 600 reais um, a month to, and they still pay all the, all the lower income um, population. Uh, with these stimulus plans, but the economy here has it's entered a very bad recession, and right now the dollar in Brazil it's one dollar. It's equivalent about six reais of our money, our currency, and the country uh, the country is struggling, and people are struggling here too. All right, and I guess that you know to the final point I wanted to ask about, which is, I think in Brazil, it's become pretty evident, and it's similar to the US and how the pandemic has been politicized. Um, and you have, you know, the two in the US, we have these two parties, and they both, the there seems to be a, 
a different view of the how to deal with the virus and what the virus is from the two sides. I was curious if there's anything like that that happened in Korea. Because certainly you have a multitude of parties. Yeah. But it, 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 is this a is this a unif is everyone pretty much unified on what this is and how to deal with it? Yes, they are. Um, the two major parties, um, they they have their issues. And Korea, to an extent, is a very politically polarized country in a lot of ways. But when it comes to things that can be measured scientifically, it's never been a political issue. So neither the coronavirus nor climate change, you know, those two big issues um, where there's a strong scientific consensus, they don't become anything more than a scientific issue in Korea. And so uh, the whole coronavirus pandemic has never become an issue that the two major parties have even talked about with each other. Um, they talk about and fight over lots of other little things, lots of really petty things, you know, politics is here, like what it is in any other raucous democracy, right? But they don't talk about this because they don't think it's necessary. And so really, you, you almost never see politicians talking about this in any other sense than this is a national issue that we're dealing with right now and we're going to get through this together. Other than that sort of message of encouragement uh, to the South Korean public, the only people the South Korean public are hearing from are the people that are taking the lead on the response to this, which is the Korean CDC. They're front and center with this. Um, people don't see them as connected to politics at all. Um, and I think in general, there's a much stronger level of trust in, um, you know, science and academia here. Um, you know, faculty at universities, for example, or even just teachers in elementary and secondary schools are held in very high regard. And they're not seen as, uh, you know, leaning to one side of the political spectrum or the other. People just don't look at them that way. And the government... Uh, does not put politicians in charge of the response to this kind of thing. They they leave the people that are the experts in charge of it. And it's been interesting to see how that's played out in Korea. You know, like I was saying, a lot of countries can look at Korea and kind of see what the future holds because there's so many steps ahead in the game. And right now, Korea has a total of, I think, 13,000 cases. And they have been doing, I believe, one of the highest, if not the highest, rates of testing of any country in the world. So if there's a country that knows the, the real extent of the spread of the virus in their country, it's Korea. And yet their death rate from this has been 2%. They know that. They know that the fatality rate of the known cases, and surely there are also unknown cases, probably a lot of them. And yet of the known cases, they know that 2% of people are dying from this. So the, the numbers and the data on this are very reliable, they're very robust, and they're very transparent. Um, you know, so I, I don't think Koreans have ever had a reason to question, you know, is this serious or is it just the flu? <laughs> because it's pretty obvious to them that this is 50 to 100 times worse than the flu in terms of fatality rates. Right. Any response to that, Marco? How, well, <laughs> <laughs> how, can, you, how, how can you beat that, right? Um, so over here the when you have a leader that doesn't really believe in science it's it's hard to to resolve a pandemic like this but in the other hand um 
Brazil has become the first country to, to test the Oxford vaccine outside of the UK. So we funding from, from the, one of the MIT Brazil sponsors, the Lemon Foundation, and they are trying to develop a, a, a vaccine pretty soon. So I'm hopeful we're gonna find so, um So are people in general just supportive of the sort of the race to a vaccine and they'll be willing, I mean, they'll be willing to embrace that once it comes. Yes, yes, yeah. they are. All right, well, I think we all hope for it soon. So <laughs> I, I think that's a good place to end. Um, so thank you both for taking the time. Yeah, happy to thank talk. You, Thanks Ari. for the good questions. Freedom, it's at the core of who we are. The freedom to live without fear, to jog where we please, to wear a hoodie. The freedom to breathe. Before we celebrate the freedom most Americans have, we must fight for the freedom all Americans deserve. Because all lives can't matter until black lives matter. Higher education institutions everywhere are facing this hard fact. The academic year is going to be radically transformed and the decisions they will make will profoundly affect students, faculty, and others in their communities. Suffice to say, it's no easy task to adapt a semester in the time of COVID. We know that the pandemic has accelerated change in education at just incredibly unprecedented paces, but it's also revealed massive structural and embedded inequities that we had been working on well, well before the pandemic, but now they've been um, amplified in particular with the social unrest and heightened awareness of systemic racism and violence and um, also an impending global economic recession, which will cause more change. That's moderator Professor Christine Ortiz kicking off the conversation. Indeed, the panelists, as well as many others in their field have had to confront issues previously unimagined. Soledad Arellano, Vice President of Academics at Universidad Alfonso Ibanez in Chile, goes into their swift transition of teaching online and what gets lost in the practice. In mid-March, we, we faced a great challenge when we were abruptly forced, literally from one day to the next one, to carry out all of our academic processes uh, online, including the most important one, teaching. Uh, at the time, our second year students and above had had only one week of classes, uh, while our first year students were just about to start the term, and therefore they hadn't met their teachers nor their classmates yet. Uh, at the beginning, our faculty uh, did in Zoom exactly the same that they would have done when teaching on campus. The only difference was the platform uh, and the use of technology. Uh, in the process, they, and we all, realized that they couldn't do business as usual and that their teaching approach had to be modified. Uh, be uh, because of that, we worked with them to redesign their syllabus, uh, prioritizing the most important learning outcomes. Uh, we also introduced methodological changes uh, that allowed for greater interaction between students um, and between students and faculty, several workshops uh, have been uh, carried out to support our faculty in this task. In this period, we, we uh, all have left our comfort zone uh, and circumstances have required us to be more flexible, creative and attentive to what was going on. Uh, 
the different challenges we we have faced every day uh, come from different di dimensions academic economic social emotional and so on now we are currently uh, planning the next semester it starts in mid-august uh, and it's a good time to reflect on the lessons from the past experience and also on the challenges that still persist i think that they can be summarized in the following three first uh, the importance of a flexible teaching approach and the need for faculty to be uh, trained for it. Uh, our faculty must be prepared uh, to teach the, the content and propose alternative learning paths uh, in order to give more options to the students uh, to go through them, strengthening their motivation. It has been necessary to reinvent the class and to reinvent ourselves as teachers. Uh, to modify activities, carry out uh, curricular prioritization, and discover that we had once as a dogma, uh, now could change. Uh, in this regard, teachers have realized that some activities or contents uh, that they consider as an essential part of their courses could be removed or modified. Uh, in addition, for several years, we have been working very hard to reinforce among our faculty, the idea that the evaluation methodology uh, was an important part of the student learning experience and therefore uh, of the teaching approach. Uh, we have emphasized the importance of carrying out transparent processes that deliver quality feedback to the students and allow a clear visualization of what is being learned. But this has been much more difficult uh, to do with online, in the on with online teaching. First, the faculty didn't know uh, the available tools, tools to evaluate online, nor the methodological aspects of online evaluation. Second, uh, in some cases, we had to fight against the concern that students would cheat on their exams. Um, and, and this resulted in many cases in more difficult tests or in tests that were designed to avoid teaching opportunities rather than evaluating learning outcomes. Uh, we are working hard on the idea that we can't design our evaluations uh, from the perspective that, that students are dishonest. Uh, we are working with, with our students in that regard too. Finally, it has been difficult to evaluate learning outcomes that um, require practical activities, such as work in the labs. Our second lesson is the importance of the mental health of our entire community. In this digital environment, human, personal, and emotional bonding has been fundamental. Uh, when thinking about a university, we generally think about knowledge and cognitive processes with the emotional in the background. Uh, in this period, this has changed. Uh, turning into a crucial necessity. Physical distance initially limited the contact between different groups in our uh, community, but we worked hard to create those spaces. In addition, we reinforced the team in charge of psychologically supporting our community, and we created new channels to provide that support. Our biggest challenge here are our first year students. As I mentioned before, they haven't met personally yet, and even though in many cases they share the same classes, uh, most of them know their names, the names of their classmates, but they don't know their faces uh, because they don't like to turn their cameras on. 
their network is very, very fragile. Uh, and I would say that this is one of my biggest concerns uh, at the time. Uh, finally, our third point, we have realized that blended or mixed modalities are here to stay. Uh, both faculty and students uh, have seen that certain activities are best developed online. Various examples have emerged. For instance, a statistics teacher told us how using Excel, uh, both for practice and for examples, worked much more smoothly uh, with Zoom than in a face-to-face -face situation. In the same way, there are some activities where we have seen a higher degree of participation when it's in the online uh, teaching rather than in the face-to-face -face, uh, activity. So our range of possibilities of teaching and learning have expanded, uh, allowing us to design the best activities uh, to achieve learning regardless of the modality. In uh, 2014, MIT published uh, the future of MIT education. Uh, which recommended bold experiments to transform teaching. Unintentionally, uh, the pandemic led us to a bold, challenging experiment from which uh, I have strong hopes that we will emerge stronger. We then heard from Ziblon Vila Kasi, Deputy Vice Chancellor at Wits University in South Africa. Wits University, the University of the Witwatersrand, uh, partnered with MIT and Harvard on edX in 2015, we were the first partner on the African continent. Uh, I think it spoke about global partnership, which is based on, on equality in an unequal world, because uh, the reason for that when I spoke to Anat Agawal was to actually craft programs that can speak to the local context. You know, that uses that platform with the content and the and pedagogy emerging from the global south that speaks. And that actually meant that we were able in partnership with the platform to uh, have a much bigger reach across the African continent than hitherto would have been the case had it just been an MIT MOOC, you know, MITx. So we've now launched more than 20 VESX programs. So that to me is one example of using this platform to actually create, think anew about global partnerships on a more equal footing. And that was our experience. But actually, as other speakers have said, and I think they've covered a little bit of my ground is that COVID, in a way, you know, brought the future to us. It fast-tracked it. I mean, we were thinking about these things. We had one of the deputy vice chancellors in charge of teaching and learning was thinking around online programs. And to us, we were thinking about scaling them, phasing them over, a, you know, with the typical university in Asia. Having gone through all these subcommittees, it might take another three, four years or so, right? So, I, you know, in a way, it took a crisis to jolt us into that stage. And I think that to me is a, a crisis that, you know, you couldn't squander. In our response, uh, sorry, that mentioned, we were caught at about the same time. I think the Southern Hemisphere uh, was a late starter. I don't know, for whatever, for whatever reasons, it could be seasonal, that South Africa started picking up cases earlier on of uh, you know, the upper, upper classes who uh, went to Europe, to Italy for skiing trips, and they came back, you know, and therefore, and again, it speaks about inequality that, you know, the poor who couldn't afford to travel abroad, in a way got infected by the elites who actually, of course, had access to resources and could able to recover. And now the uh, pandemic is spreading into the, uh, into uh, the, uh, what you call in South Africa townships, uh, what you call in, in Latin America, the favelas, where there's no social distancing at all. 
people living in closed environments cannot social distance, whilst those living in suburbs can social distance. So, I mean, uh, that speaks about the inequality even at, at this whole phase. And this also manifested, as Christine asked me to, you know, look at it from the point of view of inequality and the pedagogy, is that we had to clear the campus and do as did as, you know, what Soledad mentioned earlier. And then that created problems, actually. Because, uh, yes, it's an upper middle class university by and large, middle class. 80% uh, of our students could afford data, could afford uh, being at home where, where we take Wi-Fi, like this communication for granted. But you have a significant number of highly talented youngsters who come from indigent backgrounds and also come from far-flung areas, rural areas, where, you know, you have one post that has a, a one-cell post that, that serves the entire community. So then how do you expect those kids to compete equally with you know, middle-class children who come from the urban environments? And I think that to me is internal inequality and that we have to address by negotiating with telcos to, um, uh, to, to, to strike a deal of zero rated uh, Wi-Fi and we worked with companies to provide uh, devices for the students. And of course, conditions at home as well don't allow for them to have a very healthy working environment. But what you've noticed though, on the upside, is that you have had better attendance. So there's a higher switch on. Maybe it's a question of inertia to use physics, that it's easier to log on than to go to class, especially on a Monday morning. All of us have been, have been, have been 18 before. So you've got a higher, higher attendance and the pass rate has improved. And I think that's something that Soledad alluded to as well. And now just, just to wrap up is that uh, is that this also has given us new opportunities in terms of how we can rethink, rethink pedagogy, right? Uh, it is something that other colleagues have alluded to. So, moreover, new research questions have come out, right? So, I think that you will see in the next five, ten years, new research questions about the very nature of pedagogy in the post-COVID environment, which Kumar, which Ravi mentioned, uh, alluded to earlier on. However, having said that at the same time, I agree, we are not gonna move towards a, uh, a fully online system. I do believe that universities and centers of learning are not purely about content. I know that uh, Ravi alluded to, you know, moving content and the readjustment of content and people to the future. But I think to me, uh, human beings are analog, I mean, are, are physical. We need to go on campus. Young people need to go on campus to learn about cultures, especially in a world that Christian alluded to earlier, which is divided. Universities are spaces where you've got individuals, different backgrounds, racial groups, nationalities, and language groups to come and learn and unlearn what their parents had taught them until the age of 18. So, and that cannot be undone by online learning. That's where I am. Thank you. Christy Williams, Welsh Minister for Education, widened the scope of the implications of COVID for all higher education institutions in Wales. Uh, for those uh, who are unfamiliar with the Welsh education system, as Christine just said, we are a small bilingual nation of some three million people. And of course, we're a part of the United Kingdom, but education policy is devolved to our national parliament in Wales uh, that is known by the, its Welsh name, the Senedd. Uh, we have uh, eight universities uh, in Wales, uh, four 
that are uh, research-led and four that are teaching-led. And uh, I'm, as the Minister for Education, I'm really, really proud of the very high standards of research teaching uh, that we have at our universities. And for the second year running, uh, we've just topped the polls for student satisfaction uh, uh, in the United Kingdom. So um, there's some healthy, healthy competition between us and our near neighbors uh, across the border in England, as well as our partners in Scotland uh, and Northern Ireland. Uh, as you can imagine, we have uh, seen a significant period of disruption to education at all levels in Wales due to the pandemic. Um, schools, further education colleges and universities are all closed to face-to-face -face teaching uh, in the middle of March uh, as a result to a rapidly increasing prevalence of COVID-19 within the community. Uh, universities uh, moved very swiftly uh, to deliver programs uh, online uh, from the middle of March and uh, as we heard from Soledad that was um, challenging to have to do that in such a short space of time without a huge amount of um, time to plan for that. It also meant of course a significant disruption to uh, the examination system and to the assessment method method methods used by universities. Uh, all public examinations in our school system has also had to be cancelled uh, this this year uh, and of course that was um, a hugely worrying uh, prospect for for our students uh, but again uh, our institutions have coped uh, incredibly well uh, and over the last two weeks uh, we will have seen our students at Welsh universities gaining their their results and uh, and graduating uh, what's also been uh, incredibly impressive is that the role of the institutions in Wales have played in supporting the government in its endeavours to tackle the pandemic. Uh, each institution in Wales has had something to offer, whether that has been opening up its student accommodation to house key workers in our National Health Service, so the doctors and nurses who could not return home and risk uh, infecting their own families, uh, through to supplying accommodation to um, to the uh, to the housing minister and her efforts to get all homeless people in Wales off the streets uh, during uh, the pandemic, our institutions were also um, uh, designing and producing items of personal protective equipment, which I'm afraid we were short of at the beginning of the pandemic in our country, as well as lending uh, lab resources uh, and equipment to help uh, quickly establish our testing capacity uh, in Wales, which again uh, was, um, was a challenge at the beginning of the pandemic. Uh, now, of course, uh, all, uh, all attention is moving to how we, as I as the Minister and the Government, can support universities get ready for the new uh, academic year, uh, which would traditionally begin in mid-September. Uh, we're obviously very keen to make that as successful as possible. Uh, latest statistics show that applications to Welsh universities for first-year starters is up on where it was uh, where it was last year uh, so we are we are hopeful and there is clearly a, a demand for students to come to study uh, in Wales and we want to make sure we can assist our institutions make that a very safe and secure uh, experience from a health perspective but also a quality teaching experience and um, and, and uh, I think uh, I think Zebulon is right um, university uh, is about a whole rounded experience and how we can ensure that uh, all the social aspects uh, and the social learning uh, and education that goes on uh, at our institutions uh, can also happen with as little disruption uh, as 
as possible. Uh, we're also very keen to ensure that um, our international students uh, can join us uh, in the new academic year. Um, that's a really important part and one of the strengths of our universities is that they are uh, diverse uh, institutions uh, and uh, our students uh, from Wales who stay in Wales to study uh, benefit hugely from being able to work alongside students from across the globe. And so we're working very hard both at a Welsh level and at a UK level uh, to ensure that any barriers that could make it more difficult for inter international students to take up places uh, at a UK university are mitigated uh, and sending a message very clearly that we are indeed open for business uh, and we, are, we do indeed want uh, students to come and join us in the new uh, academic year. Uh, we're also obviously having to make, as Soledad said, uh, institutions are looking very carefully at their curriculum uh, uh, and making sure that they uh, have a, um, a, a curriculum that is suited for that combination of methods of learning now, some of which will be remote, uh, but some of which, which will be on campus and ensuring that that is well integrated uh, together uh, and understanding that it is not simply as easy as delivering your normal lecture uh, via these uh, new communication tools. Uh, we need to adapt accordingly. And I know that a lot of work is going on in that regard. Uh, but we also uh, heard uh, from Ravi that the, uh, the global economy uh, is uh, facing, uh, this is not just a, a health emergency, this is an, a, an economic emergency. And Wales is not immune from that. Um, we are already beginning to see um, significant uh, redundancies uh, and job losses within the United Kingdom and clearly our uh, institutes of higher education have a key role to play in helping us recover uh, and to uh, provide the opportunities for lifelong learning and skill uh, uh, and the ability to retrain and gain new skills. Uh, therefore we are looking at new innovative um, uh, uh, course structures and accreditation uh, and as has been said previously, uh, uh, although some of this has been talked about for a long time, there's now a real necessity to do it now. Uh, and that, that innate conservatism that sometimes we find uh, in uh, HE politics uh, really needs to be put to one side because our communities cannot afford for us to carry on talking about the need for a different type of offer. And that's particularly important to me since coming into uh, office as the Minister for Education, and I've just done four years, um, we've been trying to expand uh, access into higher education by reforming our student finance regime uh, and we've seen great success in increasing the number of part-time students and also increasing the number of postgraduate students uh, uh, in Wales and clearly we don't want to lose that momentum but we also need to look at how we can uh, uh, how we can work with our institutions to to capitalize on the amazing uh, talents that they have within those institutions to help the communities in which they are situated. And that's why we talk about a renewed sense of civic mission, that universities have a responsibility not just to the students who attend, but they have a responsibility to the places in which they are situated uh, and, and how they can respond to the needs of those communities, some of whom could be um, facing significant um, economic disruption. 
uh, in their areas. So we're looking at um, new partnerships, uh, trying to get some of that competition to fade away and uh, realize we're a small country. Uh, we can't afford to be competing against one, you know, against one another. We need to work uh, collaboratively together and also working with our FE sector. Uh, so that would usually be um, Again, those are institutions that we'd be spread uh, more evenly across Wales, but being able to, you know, uh, work closely together to get a joined up offer uh, to citizens across Wales, both at FE, uh, further education level and at a higher education level. Uh, looking at um, expanding our degree apprenticeships, where uh, students would spend most of their time uh, in the workforce, in the workplace, but then actually then having specifically specific courses to supplement and to uh, reinforce the practical experiential learning that happens uh, on the job. Micro accreditation, so short courses uh, that really uh, meet the needs of our of of the economy in Wales, an economy that is uh, changing. Uh, I was very pleased today to be able to, actually as it happens, a coincidence to be able to announce additional financial resource uh, to the sector uh, for the new uh, academic year to help support some of the work. Um, I'm particularly interested in what we can do to protect our research base. Uh, much of our research base is underpinned by um, a private sector investment and charitable uh, investment uh, to support um, research uh, posts within our universities. And because of the uh, effects of the uh, crisis on the economy, we know that that will be a challenge going forward. Uh, we don't want to lose research capacity in our institutions and we're hoping that we can uh, both at a Wales level and a UK level uh, uh, be able to put more financial resource into universities to protect the research base. I'm particularly interested in protecting early career researchers who are often the first perhaps to um, uh, find difficulty in maintaining their place at universities uh, and also um, I have a particular interest in gender equality in the research base as well uh, and we know again that women uh, and uh, female researchers are sometimes are particularly vulnerable because they have other um, often they have other things going on in their lives which might um, make juggling uh, their, their research work uh, a, a challenge so we're looking to see what we can do to support the research base going forward. Thank you to Matt Burt and Marco De Paula. Also thanks to Professor Christine Ortiz, Christy Williams, Ravi Kumar, Soledad Arellano, and Zeblan Vilakazi. Misty Radio is a project from MIT International Science and Technology Initiatives. It is produced in collaboration with me, Sanaya Sampson-Hill, Ari Jakobowicz, Eduardo Rivera, Justin Leahy, Marco De Paula, Noreen Das, and Rosabelli Coelho Quesar. You can listen to us on WMBR Cambridge 88.1 FM or wherever you get your podcasts. Here's Nern Einwort by German folk band Wir Halden. See you next time.